Welcome to the Branches podcast. Branches is a community of faith, hope and love in the South Orange County. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about our faith or our community, visit our website at branchesoc.com. John chapter 4. So we're going through a series on control. And um, because we're going through this series, we really needed to bring it home. So I brought in the big gun. And this is Justin, my friend Justin Searles. I've known him since he was in high school. And so uh, <laughs> there's two preachers this morning. Uh, me and him, he's going to be preaching through uh, art. We've gone through the message together. We, I go through the worship team. Whoever's speaking, they go through uh, the word with the worship team. And, and the scripture kind of guides everything we're doing. So, um, so we talked, and, and I actually have no idea what he's going to do. Uh, and he has a little idea what I'm going to do. I thought I had an idea what I was going to share, but it always changes as we go through it. So, but I want to make sure that there's kind of a link, like a, a because this whole series is a, is a chain, and you want to link from one to the other. So if you weren't here last week, you might have missed. Now, so I'm not going to do the entire sermon from last week, but <clears throat> I want to make sure that you kind of know what we mean when we talk about control, because it, it, it reveals itself in so many different ways. And what we talked about last week was the, the reality that we as Christians um, and we said reality, we went through some studies and, and some practical examples, how we're very prejudiced, which means we have an idea um, of how certain people are and how certain ideas are, and we hold on to those, and we learn them in different ways, and it's hard to let go of that because it's losing control. So we discussed that, and one of the things that we closed with, and this will be the, the link in the chain from last week to this week, and so if you heard it last week, you can hear it again, but... Um, when President Bill Clinton, when he had his affair, they had this huge rally, and a political rally, because, I mean, I guess that's what you have to do when your numbers go down, and you've got to build them back up, and so they had this dinner, and um, the reporters were there, and they saw Billy Graham there, and Billy Graham is to, um, to the evangelical church what the Pope is to the Catholic church. He's like the He's the unofficial leader. People look to him and trust him. And so after what um, Bill Clinton had done, they, the reporters, were surprised to see Billy Graham there because, like, why would he want to be there supporting President Bill Clinton after what he was known to have done? And so they came up, and they're like, oh, what are you doing here? I mean, you know what he did. And this was his response. And I want to put it up here so you can see it. Uh, this was his quote and how he responded. He said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict God's job to judge, and my job to love. And so we talked about that, but this week, what does it mean to love? Because that's one of those words we just throw around. So Billy Graham throws that around, but what does that practically look like? And so in this series, we're going to talk about what that looks like this week and next week. And really, we don't have enough time. This should be, this is what we do, right? So if this is what we do, and this is our job, as, as the people of God, this is our job to love. What does that look like? Because we throw that word around so much. Like, I love chocolate. I love art. I love the Dodgers. I love a left point break. I love sunsets. I love my uncle. I love lamp. I love, I love coffee. Like, we throw it around, but what does it mean? What does it mean for us to practically love? So... Before we get started here, and before we look into what 
some of the examples are that Jesus shows us what it looks like, we're going to make you talk to each other. So I'm only giving you a short time to go through that nervous, anxious feeling of, oh, crud. He's going to make us look to the person next to us? Yeah, I am. So um, in groups of no less than three, and try to keep it less than five, just because if you try to get 12 of you, it's not going to work. And trust me, after this, you're like, okay, it wasn't so bad. But this is the question that we have for you to discuss. Super simple question. What does it practically look like? Did I even pronounce that word, or did I just go, like when you don't know somebody's name, and you don't really know what it is, and you're like, oh, your name is, sorry about that. Let me enunciate. What does it practically look like for members of the church to love people inside and outside of the church? So if you consider yourself a member of either this church or another church, then you're answering that for yourself. And if you're like, hey, I don't even go to church, I don't consider myself a member, then you can then say, well, this is what I think y'all should do. Now, in your group, not everybody has to talk. You can just say, I just want to listen. So this isn't like, oh, you're in a group, you better talk. And then those of you that are like, oh, great, I get to talk. Try to limit a little bit so that someone else can jump in. Okay, so you can move your chairs, whatever. Um, If you're like, this makes my heart palpitate, trust me, I understand you can pretend you need coffee or you got to go to the bathroom and just come back afterwards because it's only going to go for five minutes. All right, so do what you got to do. Get in the groups of between three and five or go to the bathroom. All right. Okay, so open up to John chapter four and we're going to be in verse one. See, it causes you guys anxiety to get in those groups. Then it's hard to get out. So... Pull pull you back in, John chapter 4. And so as we talk about what it means to love, love is, uh, the Bible obviously says a lot about it. The best thing you can do when you're trying to define something, and this is is a quote that I love to share from a mentor of mine, said if you want to understand and interpret the word of God, then look at the actions of God. And so when we talk about what does it mean to love, then we can look at so many scriptures that try to describe it, but why don't we just look at the actions of God to interpret that, to make it clear to us? And so this is what I see, and it's not hard to see, and, and, and there's so many scriptures and examples, I didn't know which one to choose from, but I chose one that I thought was appropriate for this morning. It's been on my heart for the past month or so, um, and that's why we chose John chapter four. And in this You see Jesus love, and the way that he loves is by embracing. So to love, another way to define to love, what does that look like when Billy Graham said, my job is to love, what does that look like? It means to embrace. Now for those of you who are huggy people, you're like, perfect. And for those of you who are like, whoa, like that means that you're probably not a touchy-feely person. We're not talking about the literal arms going around another person. In the same way that we say to reject someone doesn't mean that you take them and push against their chest and shove them away. But to embrace is the opposite of to reject. And we're talking about the person. And so in this situation with Billy Graham and President Bill Clinton, he has chosen to love by embracing him, by not rejecting him. Now does that mean that Billy Graham agrees with the decision that President Bill Clinton did? No. But you know what? President Bill Clinton had to deal with the destruction of that. And I'm not talking about his ratings in the polls. The wages of sin is death. 
And when it causes that death, our role is not to jump in there and go, yay, and then start beating on them some more. So what does that look like? What does it look like for us to love? Because we need to step in. We need to be there. That's our job. But how does that look? How are we going to live this out? And um, I have a friend, and you guys know he used to be part of uh, Branches, and now he's a lead pastor at Lamb's Fellowship out in Lake Elsinore. And um, he is an artist, a poet, amazing guy. Um, I hate to say his name because then everybody thinks that if you're a pastor in Southern California, you got a weird name. So his name is Buzzy, and um, my name's Boog, so there you go. Not everyone has those weird names. We are just two good friends that happen to have that, and we happen to be lead pastors. So Buzzy said, you know, I felt like I haven't been writing too much, but in our vision casting for our church, I, I, I wrote this statement as we were trying to describe our values, and it's good. And he's right. It's really good. So good that I went, um, Buzz, I'm going to have to tell you that that's pretty much stolen. And I'll give you credit for it. He goes, you don't need to give me credit for it. You think it came from me? I think, but yeah, take it. So this is what I want to show you. We embrace people regardless of their background or present ground in hope to love them toward holy ground. So what we do is embrace them. However, this is important. Where are we taking them? Where do we hope they go? Because we can't take them. See how you even let that slip? Where I said, where are we going to take them? We can't take them. And I hate that. Because I have friends that I care about that are, that are destroying themselves. I have family that are destroying themselves. And yet, even with myself, there's things I'm doing. I'm like, why am I doing that? And I, I don't seem to be in control. And one of the parts of this series we need to understand is, duh, of course you're not in control. And in this statement, what it's saying is we as a church, we as people, we as individuals are not in control. We can embrace and we can hope to love them, but towards what end? Towards the holy ground. The ground, it's holy because the Lord is there and the Lord will do what needs to be done there. And let's look at that practically here with Jesus. So we're in John chapter four and Jesus um, is heading out to Galilee and it says that to get to Galilee, he had to go through Samaria. Now, if you were to look at a map, and we won't do that right now, you don't really have to go through Samaria. But yet, the scriptures say that Jesus had to go through Samaria. So something had to happen here. So he's going through Samaria, and um, the guys that he's with, hey, we're going to get some food. So they go to get some food, and while they're going to get food, Jesus is there by this well. It's a famous well. And he's by this well, and he's just kind of sitting there. He's he's all human. He's all God, and he's all human. And this Samaritan woman comes up, and we'll start there in verse 7. So Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, will you you give me something to drink? I mean, it's kind of a a normal request, right? I mean, I'm thirsty. You've got the bucket. Can I get some water? Except there's something missing here that we wouldn't see because we're not from there. We weren't there at this time. He is a man, she is a woman. There's a big gap there. There's a, there's a wall between, in that culture, men and women talking and interacting. On top of that, he's Jewish and she's Samaritan. Another wall. There's this phrase going around, and as soon as I heard it, 
I didn't know where it came from. It has, I don't think it's been around that long. I mean, I'm not, I'm not as hip as I used to be, but I think I'm kind of on the cutting edge with this one. I think it's in the past year. When you throw shade on someone. Like, as soon as I heard that, I was like, I know exactly what that means. It just kind of makes sense. It's one of those phrases that's just simple to understand. You're taking what there was light somewhere and you're putting shade on them. Of course, you can make it more complicated than that. But in this situation, if a Samaritan woman and a Jewish man are going to be in the same place, they're going to throw shade on each other. Because it's been thrown on, on their cultures for centuries. They hate each other. And so when he asks for water, you're not supposed to do that. In fact, you just, you just bear it. I'm just going to be thirsty because I will not lower myself to talk to her. And so that's why this is her response. You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, when we read it, we just read it, right? Well, I doubt that it sounded this way. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Come on. So how did she say it? We don't know. But if you're from a background of throwing shade, if you're from a background of being rejected, and so when you're rejected, you respond the only way you know how, you reject right back, it's probably not going to be like that. It could be several ways. She could have been sarcastic. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Oh, how can you ask me for a drink? Could have been one response. Or maybe she's the person that just smiles, but behind it's just like this, you know, that hate. But in the front, it's like, oh, I'm just going to give you the smile. Oh, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Or we're going to know some more of her background. Maybe she's like, wait a minute, is he flirting with me? Must be honest, like, oh, no, that never happens. Oh, it happens all the time in the Bible. So maybe she's like, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? I don't know if she lowered her voice like that. Or she could have just done it with fury. You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How dare you ask me for a drink? With all of that fury and that anger of what her family has had to go through, what her dad had to go through, what her mom had to go through, what she had to go through. How dare you just go, oh, I'm thirsty. We don't know how she said it, but it wasn't like a robot because she's human. And when we're human, we've been rejected, stuff comes out. Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for drink, you would have asked him. He'd give you living water. I have something here. You you don't know that the gift of God is right here in front of you. And she responds, sir. I think that's appropriate. Because why is she still talking to him? You know how you just, when you're throwing shade or if you feel rejected, like you just don't want to continue to have a conversation unless you want to take them out. But she continues in the conversation. You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Are you greater? Yeah, he is, but she doesn't know that yet. And so Jesus, we're here in verse 13, says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty But those who drink the water I give them, they'll never thirst again. And so she responds in verse 15, hey, give me this water so I won't get thirsty. I don't have to keep coming here with my bucket. So she's missing it. They're talking and she's missing what he's saying. So then he says this, and this is where the whole 
conversation, this whole interaction takes a dramatic turn. He says, go call your husband, verse 16, go call your husband and come back. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five of them. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now remember, this isn't said like a robot. So how did Jesus say it? Did he attack her? Was he like jabbing her? Was he like, oh my gosh, I can't, but, oh yeah, well, okay, well, I'm God, I'm gonna, mm, I'm, no. He's embracing her, and we're gonna see how he's embracing her here in a second. But this is not something she wants to hear. But for some reason, Jesus feels he's earned the right to bring this up, and she's not gonna run away. And that's a big deal right here. So somehow, in the way that he's interacting with her, she still feels safe because he brings up something that should feel unsafe. My mom has been married four times. I have never heard anyone, including myself and my brother, ever bring up the fact to my mom, hey, mom, you know you've been married four times. Because I know for her, that's a sense to her of, like, she failed. And if someone brings that up, She's going to interpret that like she's being rejected. And yet, this lady, after he says that, doesn't bail. So in some way, she still feels safe and doesn't feel rejected. She feels embraced. Even though he's bringing up something very important. She says in verse 19, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What? Why are we talking about mountains now? He just brought up this reality of where's your husband? You've been married five times. Oh, uh, uh, it's, it's something I do at least. Let's get on a different topic. And so there's this political argument here that Jews believe you're supposed to worship God only in Jerusalem. The Samaritans believe another mountain. And so she's bringing up this controversy to get into it and it's only going to distract. And we do that so often in our culture. Instead of focusing on what really matters, we bring up these other issues or we get taken over by these other issues and distracted from what our job is, which is to love, which is to embrace and to deal with what really matters. And with this woman at this time, she needs to have an interaction with a living God. And he's not even going to talk about her husbands anymore because that's not what's really important here. Just like the mountains aren't important, that's not really important. But when he starts getting intimate and personal with who she really is and what's really going on, she moves to some political situation or some argument, religious argument. And then in verse 21, and this is the section, this is the one verse I want us to like hold on to. This is, this is our focal point. Jesus says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Okay, I said woman that way, right? Man, if you don't know this, you never say that to a woman. In fact, my wife made that very clear when we got married. She goes, you know what? Just don't ever say that. I can't remember where it came from. Luckily, I hadn't already done it because I didn't know it was something you weren't supposed to do. But in Greek, it's not like it is in English. This is not a, a cold term. Because if there's a woman and you go, woman, that's a cult. You don't do that in English. But in Greek, that's not what Jesus is doing here. 
when he talks to her and he says the woman. There's two other places where that exact word happens from Jesus' mouth in the book of John. And both of those times when he says woman, he's talking to his mom, to Mary. When they were at the wedding at Canaan in John chapter 2, and the, this young couple has run out of wine, she says, Jesus, you got to do something. And he looks at her and he says, woman, my time hasn't yet come. Jesus is not going to look at his mom and go, woman. No, it was, an, it, was a, it was a term of tenderness. And the other time is in John chapter 19, when Jesus is up on the cross, and those who are closest to him, the only ones that have stuck around, are Mary and John. And he says to Mary, woman, this is your son. This is your mom. There's tenderness there. And so when Jesus is talking to this broken woman, and she's broken. She's been married five times, and the man that she's with, that's brokenness. She's gone through it. What she needs right now is someone to embrace her, someone that's going to stand there when everybody else rejects her and walks away, when everyone looks at her and says she's unclean, even the other Samaritans that are around there, her own people. She needs someone that's going to stand with her. And she will not step onto the holy ground until someone is willing to embrace her background and her present ground. And Jesus is doing that. He's with her through all of this. Verse 23. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And then she, she goes. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus says, that's me. I am he. I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples returned and they're surprised to find him talking to this woman. Of course they're surprised because they're dealing with the same culture that Jesus and this woman, they know this is not supposed to be happening. But I love this. It says, no one asked, what do you want? Looking at her, what do you want? And no one looked at Jesus and why are you talking to her? Because they'd seen it happen too many times with Jesus. Now, but, it says they were still surprised. They still aren't on the same page as Jesus. They know what they're supposed to do, but they don't react that way. Their reaction is they want to say these things. John is the one writing this, and he's like, man, basically we all wanted to go, what are you doing? And we wanted to get this woman out of there because when we looked at her, we rejected her immediately. One, because she's a woman, and two, because she's a Samaritan. John is being honest with himself. And like we talked about last week, we need to be honest with ourselves as individuals in a church that we hold prejudice, that we reject people, and we will not embrace them for whatever the, and it's different for all of us. We all have our people, whether we actually know them or we know of them, whether it's a group of people, whether it's an individual, there's something that builds up and we reject them. But there is no room for hate with love. And I don't mean love, I mean to embrace people so that we can lead them to holy ground. 
Now, did you catch what I just did wrong right there? I said that we would lead them to holy ground. Again, that's a control word. We can't. Trust me, I've tried. Right, Drew? Have I not tried to grab you? Justin, these are guys I've walked with. And I saw them through their high school years. And I was just like, ah! And I tried to control them and get them to go where I wanted them to go. And I'd sit them down and tell them things. And it's like, and yet, in their life, just like for those that embraced me in my life, what led me to the holy ground were not those people, but the way that they loved me and embraced me and walked with me. And it was God's spirit when I was open and ready and been loved into that place ready enough that I could hear that truth. And this woman is arriving at that place. She still hasn't accepted that he's the Messiah, but maybe, maybe she's going to. Could this be the one? And if he is, and she believes that, then she will make it to holy ground, and he will deal with her. And when I mean he will deal with her, I mean he will love her and care for her and show her the truth, not only of who he is, but the stuff in her life so that she's no longer destroying herself and others. That's what happens on the holy ground. Verse 28 says, then she left her water jar and took off. Think about that. She left her water jar, the bucket. She came for what she wanted. But when she got what she needed, she didn't need the bucket anymore. And she took off. That is so powerful. There are these pictures, these pictures that I have in my head, and maybe you have them, of what it looks like to embrace. And this last week, a friend of mine was telling me a story, and it's this picture of what it can practically look like to embrace. And it's between a father and a son. And this father and son aren't really particularly close. And uh, the son actually said, you know, I don't really go to my dad for too much, like, advice. Like, we just don't have that. We're kind of working on it. And, and he, he's a little bit older. Um, older means, like, he's around, well, I'm not going to tell you his age because maybe you'll figure out who it is. But when he was around uh, 22, 23, he was dating this girl real super serious. And um, they'd been dating for a long time. And when you date someone for a long time, that usually means you're going to have some of these moments. And so they had one of those moments. And it was the moment where they broke up. And so he's in his room, and um, this is how people break up nowadays. He had his computer open, and they were talking to each other. She was over here, he was over there, and it was long, they were long distance. And um, they were Skyping. And so his dad walks in, in, the, in the, the climax of the breakup. And he's, this, this guy's in his room, and he's got tears. That's why the door's closed. And he's... He's like, oh, he's, he's losing it because this matters to him. And his dad walks in and the guy looks over and goes, get out. And he said a bunch of words that I can't repeat in church or I could, but you'd be totally distracted. But he threw a bunch of those words out to his dad. And his dad's like, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. And he goes out and closes the door. But his dad stayed just outside the door. And while this young man was breaking up and crying and when he closed the computer, his dad walked in. Now his dad had for quite some time told his son, like, you shouldn't be in this relationship. Like, this isn't good, it's not gonna fit, you know, for these reasons, these reasons, basically judging the situation. Wrong or right, he was judging the situation. He, was, he cares for his son, he, 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 and sometimes care turns into control. And so he's trying to tell him, you need to do this, you need to do this, and so that, that wasn't a topic for a discussion. But when he walks in now, he has every opportunity to go, 
Did we not discuss this? Did we not talk about this? Of course this would happen. But he didn't. He walked in, sat on the bed, and from the way he describes it, the son, had never done this before. He just put his arm around his son and embraced him. And his son just dropped his head into his shoulders and just bawled. And my friend shared that moment because it was, it's a moment. It's, they'd had plenty of conversations. His son, his, the dad had given the son so much direction and advice, but that's not what he needed. What he needed at that moment was to know that his dad would be there with him. And from the way it sounded, we didn't get into that, but it sounded like the son started talking to the dad and asking him what he thought <laughs> because it was open at that point. Because he had embraced them. And because of that embrace, then he wanted to ask those questions. And they have dialogued quite a bit. And in fact, when we talked recently about this relationship, because he's in this relationship again, he said, yeah, I'm going to, um, uh, I've talked to my dad about it. He didn't talk to his dad about it before. And he didn't notice that. But I picked up on that. Like, so you, you talk to him now since the embrace. Those people in our lives, we have this love for them, and so we want to control them. And um, I saw this phrase uh, directed at me, and I think it's appropriate for us. So what do we do with love? Well, this phrase stuck in my head. We need to accept and embrace rather than criticize or control. And I have in my head so often, and it's usually when I'm driving. I don't know why it's mainly when I'm driving. And that's actually one of the reasons why I hardly look at Facebook anymore. Because <laughs> I see all these pictures and I'm like, oh, I think it's time for me to criticize and control in my head. But instead, it's the place where we need to accept and embrace. Or to go back to the phrase, if you could go back there, Rob, the phrase that I stole from Buzz from Lamb's Fellowship about the church. We embrace people. We, we seek to embrace people. Whatever their background, whatever their present ground, in the hope to love them toward holy ground. That's our job. That's what we do. And as I'm saying this, I'm really saying it to myself because I've spent a lifetime of trying to control and trying to lead people to the holy ground. But we can't do that. We can love them towards the holy ground. We can, we can share this holy ground. But people have to come to that place on their own. And if we truly love them, then we need to seek their greater good. But we can't control them to get to that greater good. Um, genuine inner readiness to secure the good of another. That's love. Genuine inner readiness to secure the good of another. That readiness that you want to secure, that good for them. And I've tried to do that by controlling and criticizing or judging or convicting. And I couch it by me loving them, but they don't feel loved. And they're not listening. And it's not leading them towards holy ground. It makes them want to run because they feel rejected. And yet, if we can let go of that and embrace them with their background and their present ground, 
with the hope that God will take them towards the holy ground. That's a whole different approach. I mean, think about it with chocolate. You can love chocolate, but you are not seeking the greater good of chocolate. You want to devour it. You want to own it. You want to just blah. Well, at least I do. That's one of my issues. So in this, we're going to look at this again next week. What, what does that look like? But especially who? Like, who am I supposed to love? We have people surrounding us all the time that we are set free to love. And so we're going to look at that next week. And we're going to look at Jesus, just like we did this week. Because Jesus is in the habit, in the behavior of embracing. Jesus embraced Levi, the tax collector, who everybody else had rejected. He embraced this Samaritan woman. He embraced the adulterous woman, who everyone not only rejected but wanted to kill. Did he agree with their behavior and what they'd done? No. Because he knew it was destructive for them. Blind Bartimaeus, the leper, the rich man, the thief on the cross, Judas, in the hope that they would make the choice, because it's their choice, to come to holy ground, to where God can deal with it. So I want you to close your eyes. I want to invite the worship team up. And I want to read um, from Philippians 2. So if you could stand with me as we worship. (coughs) I'm going to read from Philippians 2. It's not going to be up on the screen. I want you to just hear it. Um, They're going to lead us in a song of prayer. Then after that, we're going to take communion together. Um, So I'd like to ask those who are serving communion, um, if after this song... If we could have uh, people that are doing the station up front, if you could come up here, and there'll be a station in the back. So if you're in the back half, it'll probably be easier for you back there. You can come here. You can also, if you want, go out the side doors. Um, But at this church, we like bumping into each other. So we made you get in small groups, so we don't mind you bumping into each other. But if you don't like that, you can go out the sides. But please listen to these words that um, Paul had while in jail in Philippi as he was talking about how we treat others. Philippians 2.1, he says there, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And if you haven't done so yet, can you close your eyes and just listen to the rest of this? Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Father, we ask that you'd lead us in worship. Amen. Amen.